Welcome to Sunday School Dropouts, the podcast where an ex-Christian and a non-believing sort of Jew read all the way through the Bible for the first time, except we finished the Bible, and we are now talking about stuff that seems like it should be in the Bible, but isn't. I'm Lauren O'Neill. And I'm Nico Bakulich. Let's get biblical. All right, friends. And uh, we always like to say a couple things beforehand just to let people know this isn't a Christian Bible study podcast. It's not appropriate for children. We say a bunch of cusses. Um, We're going to talk about battle gore. So don't listen if you don't like that stuff. I'm the non-believing sort of Jew. And I'm the ex-Christian. I was raised Presbyterian. I'm now an atheist. And today we are discussing something that includes war gore. What is that lore gore? That is Masada. Masada, the forbidden dance. (laughs) Anyway, everything that we know about Masada comes from the Jewish Roman historian Flavius Josephus. You might remember him. You might have heard of him. We talked about him in our last episode. Mm -hmm. Do you want a refresher? Well, too bad. I'm going to give you one. I would prefer not, honestly. He was a Jewish... uh, Governor General Guy, a GGG, uh, in Roman occupied Judea from about 37 to 100 AD. So, you know, shortly after Jesus died. Mm -hmm. Uh, Supposedly. He he eventually went over to the Roman side, became loyal to the Roman Emperor Vespasian and his son Titus, who succeeded him. Uh, Josephus wrote two major works of history called The Antiquities of the Jews and the Jewish War or the Wars of the Jews that kind of uh, explained Jewish history and culture to a Greco-Roman audience. These books are extremely valuable historical sources, but at the same time, you have to remember that A, the idea of like objective reporting and like facts existing that could be verified was very different back then. And uh, also, B, Josephus has a very pronounced bias because he literally, like, changed sides in the war. So he has a very strong point of view that the Jews would have been better off if they had accepted Roman rule and not rebelled. And then Rome wouldn't have had to crush the rebellions and kill everybody. So with that in mind, Josephus will be our main source here. And uh, like last episode, I'm reading the complete works of Josephus translated by William Whiston in 1737. Apparently, that's still the main Josephus translation uh, in currency. Yeah, that was the one that I read. Sweet, sweet Billy Whist. Billy Whist. Um, So to understand Masada, we first have to backtrack a little. In our last episode, we talked about how Josephus... Actually, I guess it was two episodes ago. We talked about how Josephus divided uh, Jewish philosophy during his time into three sects, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. Mm -hmm. The Essenes were the ones who made the Dead Sea Scrolls who were at Qumran. Um, But in The Antiquities of the Jews, book 18, he also briefly mentions a fourth philosophy founded by Judas the Galilean, which is similar to the Pharisees philosophically, Mm -hmm. except that they have an inviolable attachment to liberty, They accept only God as their ruler, and they don't fear death or torture. And these are the zealots. Mm. And they're rebelling against Rome. Um, The flashpoint of the rebellion is that Quirinius, 
or Cyrenius, depending on who you read, uh, who was the Roman legate governor of Syria, which mm. for some reason uh, included, I guess, like uh, the Galilee, the like northern portion of okay. Judea. He was doing a census, which I gather is bad. Well, censuses always precede taxes. Yeah. That's the main problem. That's the, the only reason why they want yeah. to count you is so they can count your sweet cherry silver coins. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. The cherry flavored coins. I get those. Um, this is the same census that is referred to in the Gospel of Luke hmm. as the reason why Joseph and Mary were, were not in Nazareth. They had to travel to Bethlehem. Uh, because of the, the census of Quirinius. Of course, that gets the years wrong because Luke says that's during the reign of Herod and Herod had already been dead for nine years. But whatever, it's the Bible. We don't expect it to be true unless we happen to take every word of it literally and run our country based on that for some reason. Yeah. According to Josephus, everyone was mad about the census. Mm -hmm. But... Because of the taxes. But they were going to, you know, they were going to go along with it. It was just kind of like life until Judas the Galilean had to stir up trouble and convince all these zealots to start rebelling. And according to Josephus, the nation was infected with this doctrine to an incredible degree. <laughs> and like everything that came after is really the zealots fault, like war, famine, the destruction of the Second Temple everything. It's all because they couldn't just like accept Roman taxes. Um, by the time Josephus is writing, Judas the Galilean is long dead. Mm -hmm. He's been dead for decades. He was executed by the Romans, which interestingly, we know not from Josephus, but from the canonical New Testament. Acts 537 says Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt, he too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Hmm. There you have it. Thanks, Bible. Yeah. Really coming through in the clutch there. In addition to the Zealots, we also have another sect called the Sicarii. Now, these are the most extreme of the Zealots, right? Yeah. Their relationship to the Zealots is somewhat unclear. They, they might have been a more extreme splinter group. They might have just been like another branch that diverged another branch of the fourth philosophy sure um sometimes they're kind of in league with each other sometimes they are at each other's throats josephus definitely lumps them in the same camp right um and in fact he says that the leader of the sicarii um who's named eleazar is actually a direct biological descendant of judas the galilean hmm. um but again we have no like there aren't any other sources, Correct. Right? So yeah. it's strictly just one man and his yes. and his agenda in right. some cases. Yeah, and and it is very ag agendic in that, like, you know, he he's talking about these are like these are these troublemakers, right? And he's trying to convince the Romans as he's writing, like, Jews are not an inherently rebellious or warlike people. Most of us are fine. We can get along fine with Greco-Romans. You know, we've got our own ancient history, our own tradition of philosophy. Um, and, you know, we can be cosmopolitan, but there's these fucking troublemakers that right. keep stirring everybody up. And that's the zealots and the Sicarii. Um, Sicarii is a 
Latin word from sica, meaning dagger, because they carried daggers concealed in their cloaks and used them to assassinate people, uh, which is kind of badass. According to Josephus, they would like go into big crowds at festival times and just like go and surreptitiously stab people and then escape into the crowd unidentified. Right. So this this uh, sort of religious group of, of assassins mm-hmm. predating the Hashashin later and people like the Knights Templar and whatever. Who yes. Are warriors for the faith. And etymology corner. What, uh, how does that word survive today? Do you know? Um, I know that according to a contemporary Hollywood film mm-hmm. that I've seen. Mm-hmm. Have you seen it? No. Oh. Billboards okay. 4, you didn't let me finish. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, it's, Sicario is used as a, as a, a term for an assassin. Yes. Sicario in, in Spanish and other Romance languages, Italian, Portuguese, it means assassin, like the recent movie. Sicario 2. Sicario 2. New Blood or whatever it was called. Um, Yeah, Last Blood. It's racist against itself. Some people have proposed that the name Judas Iscariot Hmm. means that he was one of the Sicarii. Um, It's more likely that it means he was from the city of Kyriot. But some people have proposed it. Who am I to tell them It's convenient. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, it's very convenient. Since it's in Latin, Mm -hmm. we can presume that Sicarii is not what they called themselves, right? It's probably what the Romans uh, (laughs) named them pejoratively. Uh But it is the word that's used um, in the Bible, in the canonical Bible, in Acts 21, 38. Um, The Roman soldiers arresting Paul think he's a leader of the Sicarii. Uh, They're mistaken. He's actually just, (laughs) he's just good old Paul. Yeah. but like the, it's usually translated as like terrorist or assassin or whatever. Um, but it is Sicarion in the original Greek. Hmm. Um, and in the Talmud, actually, um, it uses the word Sicarin to refer to Sicarii. So maybe they did call themselves that. Um, they might have also called themselves Kanaim, which means zealots hmm. in Hebrew. Um, the Talmud also refers to Biryonim, which means like ruffians or like gangsters sure um but that also seems pejorative so who knows but But you never know baby i it's history baby (laughs) baby it's history Mm -hmm. we'll be right back (laughs) and we're back with history so the first jewish roman war as it is now called started in 66 a.d Obviously, there had been a lot of tension between the Jews and the Romans for many decades leading up to that. As we've seen for many hundreds of years in the canonical Bible, Jewish monotheism is pretty unique Mm -hmm. in the ancient world. And whenever the Jews get conquered by someone else, there's not just the usual tension of paying taxes and and being slaves and stuff. There's also... This additional tension because Jews won't worship foreign gods and they won't worship foreign leaders who are like considered to be gods on earth or representatives of God on earth. Obviously, if they're very particular about this. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of their main thing. If you look at the years leading up to 66 AD, you obviously, you know, you see stuff like. Oh, uh, Jesus getting executed by the Romans. Wow. Um. 
Barabbas almost getting executed by the Romans. Uh, the aforementioned Judas of Galilee getting executed by the Romans. Paul constantly almost being executed by the Romans and so on and so forth. So it's obviously, you know, it's very tense. Um, but there's an event in 66 that sets off a full-blown rebellion from the Jews. Woodstock. And it is Woodstock 99. <laughs> Woodstock 66. Uh, what happens is, in Caesarea, a city on the Mediterranean coast, the north of modern-day Israel, some Gentiles deliberately go outside synagogue on the Sabbath and sacrifice a bird in an earthen vessel. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm unclear on the specifics here, but it makes the synagogue ritually unclean, and it's very deliberate. Um, and the Roman procurator of the area is named Gessius Floris, and when the Jewish leaders go to him to try to settle the matter in court, like upstanding citizens, he charges them the money to hear the case, but then doesn't hear it and uh, just throws them in jail. And then he also is like, also, we're like raising your taxes and takes money from the temple. Mm. Um, and then Jewish protesters start protesting. And according to Josephus, they pass around a basket for Floris, quote, as for one that was destitute of possessions and in a miserable condition. I see. To, to publicly shame him for taking their money. Like, oh, he must be so poor. Let's send around, you know, let's pass around the hat for him. Pretty good. Yeah. Um, Florius responds by sending soldiers to just go kill hundreds of people <laughs> and uh, steal whatever. <laughs> Thank you for laughing at the I death mean, of hundreds. Well, it's, uh, it's just funny that they're like. <laughs> You know, this is unjust, and they they come, come up with this great troll, and he's and just he like, just "Yeah, like, fuck you." Well, I think we'll just kill him. Um, and they also kill like Roman citizens of Jewish origin who mm-hmm. are like loyal to Rome and who aren't involved in this, um, but they kill them anyway just because they're like ethnically Jewish. Um, the Jewish leaders are obviously appalled by this, but in the interest of peace and not having even more Roman soldiers come and mark them, they're trying to get the people to chill out until, like, the next procurator is appointed. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, maybe that guy will be better. Um, unsurprisingly, this does not work. And so Eleazar, son of Ananias. Ananias is the high priest at the time. Eleazar is the governor of the temple, uh, which... I guess means some sort of ceremonial role. He's kind of in charge of like the day to day goings on at the temple. It seems like not ceremony. Um, It seems like the opposite. Um, And he, well, he's a bit of a firebrand baby. And he decides the temple will no longer be accepting donations from Gentiles or making sacrifices on their behalf. Hmm. I was surprised to learn that they took, Donations from Gentiles or made sacrifices on their behalf? Yes, but apparently they they like were making sacrifices on behalf of the Roman emperor. That was like a thing. And for them to stop was a huge offense to the Romans. Um, that was I mean, that's an interesting compromise, right? It's be like, well, we can't make sacrifices to you, but we will sacrifice to our much right, better God. Right. In, in your, your honor. Name, yeah. You know? um, now his dad ananias and the other like high priests and people in power 
try to stop this, but Eleazar and some Sicarii uh, friendos. So Eleazar is in with a bad crowd, a crowd of daggermen. Yeah, a crowd of daggermen, and he has control of the temple. Hmm. And so they they kind of like have a little a little uh, skirmish amongst themselves. Ananias's house gets burned down, um, and then some some of these Sicarii, in the meantime, go and quote by treachery take the fortress of Masada from the Romans. I tried really hard to find out what the treachery was. I could not. I don't know by what means a few Jewish rebels could go to like a Roman occupied fortress and somehow trick them out of it. I mean, these old timey fortresses, I mean, it might not have been full of troops is the first thing. That's true. Because you can hold, you could hold those old fortresses with like not that many people if you just shut the doors. That may be true. But if somebody knows your secrets, mm. Or your greatest weaknesses. Such then... as being easily tricked <laughs> by treachery. Damn. <laughs> then they could get in there, slip in, and then the fortress is theirs. Now, what's Masada? Masada in Hebrew is Metzada, and it just means fortress. It was originally built, it's like it is a Jewish fortress, um, probably built like during the reign of Herod the Great, who you may remember from Jesus times. Uh, but the Romans were in control of it right now. Herod had spruced it up as a fortress as a place for him to hide if Jerusalem got too hot. Yes, because Herod was, he's kind of a Roman puppet. Mm -hmm. Um, he's, he's like an Edomite. Right. So he's Semitic, but he's not Jewish. Mm -hmm. And so he's kind of in a weird spot. So he fortified this place outside of town. It's a natural a uh, little mesa, mm-hmm. basically. Yes, Wikipedia calls it a horst. <laughs> For all my uh, geography heads out there, if you know what a horst is. <laughs> geo boys, geo girls, everything <laughs> in between. Um, so those are the events that set off like the full-blown Jewish-Roman war. Um, and that is actually one of the very first events of the war is that they take back Masada. At some point... During the first year of the war, year 66, a Sicarion? What do, we, what, what do we think the singular is? A Sicario. A Sicario. Okay. Uh, who, according to Josephus, was the son of Judas the Galilean, who founded the Zealot movement. He went to Masada, broke open King Herod's armory that he had left behind, mm-hmm. and took all the arms to arm the rebels. They go to Jerusalem kill a bunch of Romans, you know, kind of drive the Romans out of the the part of Jerusalem that they're, like, occupying. But they also kill the high priest, Ananias, who was, you remember, against the Sicarii, including his own son. Josephus, who is, you remember, biased against the Sicarii, describes Menahem as barbarously cruel and says he was like strutting around, like wearing King Herod's like old clothes, <laughs> and like pretending like he was like, you know, the king of the fucking world. Uh, and Eleazar, along with his faction of Sicarii, um, are are so horrified by Menahem's violence and arrogance, you know, including perhaps, <laughs> you know. Uh, Eliezer might not have wanted to like go so far as to kill his dad, <laughs> you know. Yeah. He was fine with maybe burning his house down, but they um, they 
decide they don't like Menahem and they kill him and as many of his guys as they can. Right. So now, just to recap, yeah. the Sicarii took Masada, took over Jerusalem, and then had an infight amongst themselves where they're now down to just the single Eleazar. Uh, yeah. And this is actually the second Eleazar. Right. So uh, this is Eleazar, son of uh, Jairus or Ben Yair. And he's related to Menahem. It doesn't say how. It's like his cousin or something. But so also, you know, like a, a genetic inheritor of the fourth philosophy. Um, and he escapes and goes back to Masada. At this point, Josephus says, the general populace are kind of on the rebel side because the Roman procurator Florus was so fucked up. Yeah. But Menahem was really fucked up too. Right. So now that he's dead, they're kind of like, okay... We can maybe make this work with the... We can hash something out with the Romans. Now, Josephus says that the Sicarii are not really living up to the high principles that they espouse. They're really just in it to get power and money for themselves. Right. And so when they're up at Masada and they need supplies, they just go and raid the surrounding countryside, even though that's all Jewish people who they're supposedly fighting to free from the Romans. Um, In the year 67... He says they commit a particularly atrocious act because they go and raid the village of Ain Gedi. They completely destroy it. They kill 700 of their their countrymen and they steal all their stuff. And this happens on Passover. <laughs> you know, he's just got to twist the knife. Yeah. A bit. Yeah. <laughs> you wonder how many of these details really are. Well, whatever. Yeah. Aside from Masada, the first Jewish Roman war is still happening outside of that. Um, the Romans send the Legion uh, 12 Fulminata or Thunderbolt 12th Legion sure. to put down the rebellion. The Fulminators. Uh, yeah, exactly. And the, the Romans, you know, win the first few battles, but then they get defeated in this huge upset at uh, Beth Horon uh, by this big united front of Jewish rebels. You got Pharisees, you got Sadducees, Zealots, Sicarii, and a big peasant faction. Mm. And this is like crazy. Nobody expected this at all. Um, after this defeat, Rome sends in the big guns. Right. Uh, no more fulminators. Because <laughs> the, ful- got... the fulminators are a mixture of like levies from other mm-hmm. local territories with a small amount of actual Roman soldiers. Yeah, they're mostly Syrians. Right. Uh, and so now they're going to send in the big guns, which is the general Vespasian and his son Titus. Um, one of the heroes at Beth Horon was Simon Bargiora. He was leading the peasant faction. But the powers in charge did not reward him with the nice, you know, commander position that he was expecting because they were afraid he'd turn the peasants against them someday. Kind of like Herod building Masada. Um, In response, he turned the peasants against them immediately and (laughs) began uh, just like ransacking rich people's houses and like beating up rich people in the streets. And then he uh, and his guys had to flee to Masada with the Sicarii. Simon apparently starts committing his own tomfoolery in the countryside around Masada. He's going and ransacking stuff. Um, He pisses off the zealots. The zealots kidnap his wife. He gets her back by killing a bunch of people. By the year 68, you have another 
a new high priest in Jerusalem, and he's trying to combat the zealots and the Zakarii, who are also against each other. The high priest wants to cooperate with Rome and end all this madness. Incidentally, according to Josephus, this is the same high priest who ordered the execution of Jesus' brother James. Hmm. Presumably as a zealot. And then we've also got the zealot leader, uh, John of Gishala, whom you may remember as one of Josephus's uh, petty enemies from our last episode. Oh, John. Yeah. yeah. He manages to kill the high priests and hand the temple over to the zealots, but then Simon like, is trying to also take control of Jerusalem, and then there's a third factor led by a third Eleazar. So basically, it's a real shit show. It's really wild to me. Like, you look at when, when everybody banded together, they were able to beat the most powerful military in the world. Mm-hmm. And, like shock the entire nation right i mean shock the entire world yeah the entire empire and then they're like eh let's just all fight amongst ourselves you know (laughs) (laughs) it's like we have good evidence that you know we could keep them at bay for a while and maybe come to good terms with them or we could just stab each other in the back over and over again because we're all dead because some of us are slightly more radical than others you know and I think that's worth fighting each other for and not worrying about Rome. Uh, On that note, shall we take a break? Yeah, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to dive into the real story of Masada. Everything else was prelude, baby, but it's Sonata time in about one minute. Okay, bye. Welcome back to Sunday School Dropouts. My name is Nico. I'm Lauren. And we're talking about Masada. We are. So we left off with the Jews infighting themselves to death. Mm -hmm. Uh, As we know from our last episode, you know, the Romans start coming and they don't stop coming. They defeat Josephus, who is the general at Jotapata. Right. Um, Which was another famous siege. Yes. And Josephus made great pains to detail his clever tactics in trying to extend the siege and and save his people there. And in fact, the Romans were so impressed by his cleverness mm-hmm. that they they took him alive after he after he wriggled his way out of a suicide pact. He simply did. And uh and then of course he predicted that Vespasian, the Roman general who captured him, would become emperor. And somewhat unexpectedly, he did, and then Josephus was the big little boy, and he stayed on the Roman side for the rest of the war and the rest of his life. And uh, he was there when the Romans, you know, uh, besieged Jerusalem, Mm -hmm. which uh, also, by the way, 
I didn't realize this. I didn't have a good context for this last episode. But John of Gishala and Simon Bargiora were just squabbling amongst themselves in Jerusalem until the Romans literally started building the ramparts. And then they were like, oh, I guess we should fight the Romans. <laughs> like, oh, OK. And then uh, also one of them uh, burns all of Jerusalem's food supplies. They had enough food for like a year. And then uh, one of these rebel guys was like, no, we got to motivate the Jews to fight harder. They have to be desperate to win. And so they burned all their food supplies. Yeah, that's one, that's another thing that that uh, Josephus blames on the Sicarii. Which I mean, come on. I mean, it, it why fit, would you why it, would you burn your food supplies? It fits their pattern, baby. If all you have is a dagger, everything looks like a turned back to you. <laughs> uh, and but then they should have just slashed the food supplies. They should have chopped up the food supplies with their daggers. That would have been fine. I mean, that would make them more delicious. <laughs> and uh, you know. As a result of their great motivational techniques, the Romans uh, enter the city, kill thousands of people, burn down the Second Temple, which will never be rebuilt. And uh, and every element of this, Josephus believes, is a huge strategic and tactical misstep. He was like, if they hadn't have burned the food supplies, they could have sieged, maybe worked out a negotiation. Well, listen, the city wouldn't have had to burn. I, I don't know anything about warfare at all in any way. But I just don't think that burning your food supplies is a good idea. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm struggling to think of a scenario in which it would be a great idea. I just don't think that. Was- I think Josephus is right about burning your food supplies. <laughs> Can I have to go with him on this one? Yeah. Okay, fair enough. So after Rome takes Jerusalem, the war is pretty much over, but it's not over, over. Right. And they still have. They have to cross the last few fortresses. They've got Herodium, uh, uh, Machiarius, Jardis, and then. Finally, the last one standing is Masada. Yeah, Masada. Eleazar Ben Yair, mm-hmm. son of Jairus, is in charge of the Sicarii at Masada. This is the one who is descended from Judas the Galilean, who founded the Zealots. Uh, and according to Josephus, they're up there just 24 7 sinning. There is no violence they won't commit. No blasphemy they won't uh, enjoy. Uh, the only one worse than them is John of Gashala, who just happens to be one of Josephus' personal enemies. Mm-hmm. Um, and Josephus gets in like a sick burn. He's like, yeah, it's like kind of ironic that they called themselves like the zealots because they said they were zealous for righteousness, but actually they were zealous for wickedness. <laughs> oh, my God. So what's life like up there in Masada? Um, we mentioned that Herod had spruced the place up a while before the Romans got to it, of course. Uh, one thing he did was fill the larders in this castle mm-hmm. with provisions so well preserved mm-hmm. that supposedly even at the time of of this siege... Like a hundred years 100 later. A hundred years later, the food's still good. Now, I don't know about how long dates and, what does he say, pulse and dates mm-hmm. last, but I will say... We still got we still got those scrolls <laughs> from, from nearby Qumran. That's right. And they're still delicious. And they're still delicious. We can only presume. I've so, never gotten a taste despite my many searching, letters. You're still searching for that mummy, honey. Baby, if it's old and crumbly, I got to get it in my tumbly. <laughs> um, I, just to say... Things are well preserved in that area of the world, as we've discovered many times on this very podcast. 
But um, also, uh, the the castle is filled with cisterns dug into the very rock of the mesa that are filled with fresh water. It's a horst, not a mesa. Thank you. Sure. Whatever. I got to give it a little bit of Latin flair. <laughs> okay. Um, there are two paths that lead up to the fortress. Um, one from the east that leads from the lake Asphaltitis. That's the Greek word for the Dead Sea. Hmm. Apparently, they excavated asphalt there. What is asphalt? I, I mean, it's a part of the Romans' like engineering revolution, and I have no idea what it is. Wow, good for I. You know, I like if you say asphalt, I'm like, yeah, I know what asphalt is. But then I'm like, wait, <laughs> they were excavating asphalt from the Dead Sea. I have no idea what asphalt is. Uh, then there's another path from the west. The one from the east is called the Snake Path mm. because it's very narrow and windy. I guess it's kind of like a switchback. Yep. Thing. And you can only go up it, uh, Josephus says, by placing one foot in front of the other. That's that's an unusual way of walking in my experience. I'm usually just just buzzing around. I think he means it's like the width of one foot. Oh, that's in some, very In narrow. some places. So that's what that's what the Roman army is up against. And if you trip, you will fall down like a sheer cliff face to your death. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been to Masada, <gasps> and you can hike the snake path still. Wow. Um, you're supposed to start before sunrise because it gets so hot during the day. Mm. Um, and our Israeli tour guide told us that only mad dogs and Englishmen hike it. It's a great phrase. I don't know where he got that phrase. I mean, it's like a it's a phrase from somewhere. Mm-hmm. And he was very proud of it. <laughs> um, and I think you can also hike the ramp that the Romans built, which is either slightly easier or slightly harder or something. It looks a lot easier to me. Okay. Speaking of, we haven't even mentioned the ramp. Oh, yeah. So here's what was happening. The, there was a Roman general slash procurator named Silva. Mm-hmm. Is he Brazilian? Yes. I assume so. He is marching on Masada and he's setting up all the garrisons and stuff. This is another thing. As I mentioned, I don't know anything about warfare in any context or at all. Um, Last episode, I was talking about like... I mean, you know how it can change a man. (laughs) No, I don't. That's the thing. That's the problem. That's the whole problem with our relationship. No. um, Last episode, I was talking about like, oh, in my mind, when you like a siege lasts for like... 45 minutes you know because that's it's like one game of thrones episode or it's like the climactic scene in the lord of rings movie lord of the rings movie i know what that is and uh the other thing that i didn't realize is that like there was a lot of like architecture going on to to besiege somewhere you had to build all these walls and towers and ramps and everything and silva is is building, I don't know, like auxiliary architecture to this fortress just to invade it. It takes a long time. That's right. Silva and his troops, his corps of engineers, move thousands and thousands of tons of dirt and stone to build uh, a ramp wide enough for a siege tower to actually roll up to the walls of Masada. Yeah. And you can see aerial photos of this. Most of the ramp that they built is still there. Yeah, and although you can, in you can the sixties, in the sixties, they rebuilt a lot of it to Roman spec. Oh, okay. Well, that's fair though, because people like to hike it. I took the fucking cable car. <laughs> I was like, yeah, no, <laughs> that's no. <laughs> um, also, Josephus goes on a weird aside here about how it's a wonder that Cleopatra didn't have Mark Antony 
like destroy Masada uh, when Herod was king because she hated Herod and Antony was, quote, so miserably enslaved to his passion for her. <laughs> anyway, Silva. Just a little bit of. Yeah. Old, <laughs> of old world goss there. Yeah, exactly. Silva is attacking Masada. It's hard, but he also has the, you know, the fucking Roman army behind him. And once they have the ramp up, they they get a battering ram going to break down the 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 gates or the walls or whatever a fortress has. I don't know. Um, the Sicarii, in response, build like. Is there a technical term for it? No, I mean, they build an inner wall. So yeah. the outer wall is made of stone. Yeah. Uh, and it's being smashed by the battering ram yeah. because it's rigid. But yeah. what they do is basically in the section where the ramp meets the wall. They build a second wall behind the first wall and they build it out of like clay and dirt reinforced with planks that yeah. they that they actually steal from one of the synagogues on on Oof, site. Very blasphemous. Well, but I it's mean, like it's like an absorption wall. So now the. Yeah, they, the, build, they basically build like a, a wall that can't be battering rammed. Yeah. Because it's too soft. However. It does contain wood. Mm hmm. So the Romans set it on fire. That's right. So that didn't last for very long. And that's pretty much it. That is the siege. Uh, yeah. According to Josephus, once the Romans set this wall on fire, the flames started to like blow back at them. Mm -hmm. And it was almost going to like set their shit on fire. But then God himself blew the flames back at the blaspheming Sicarii. Yeah. So Eleazar seeing their impending doom, the second wall has fallen. Um, confusingly in Josephus' telling of it, uh, upon breaching the second wall at the end of the day, instead of the Romans immediately charging through, they're like, okay, both walls are down. Let's go home. <laughs> so they go back to camp and they say, first thing in the morning, we're taking over that fortress. We'll see you guys in a bit. Luckily, in dramatic terms. Yeah, this gives Eleazar a great chance to give a speech. That's right. A perfect opportunity to speechify. And specifically, what, is, what does Eliezer want to talk about? Well, according to Josephus... They can take our lives, but they can never take our freedom. Something along those lines. Neither did Eliezer once think of flying away, nor would he permit anyone else to do so. But when he saw their wall burned down by the fire and could devise no other way of escaping or room for their further courage and setting before their eyes what the Romans would do to them, their children and their wives, if they got them into their power, he consulted about having them all slain. <laughs> I'm just going to float an idea here. I'm so confused because, like, he could find no other room for their further courage. Maybe, I don't know, fighting the Romans? <laughs> he was no, like, but... he's like, well, we're going to be face to face with the Roman army. No, but I don't see any way we could possibly prove our courage. What's going to happen is they're going to take their wives and children and they're going to rape and torture them. And it's going to be terrible. And uh, it would be better if they all just died than to be taken into slavery also they they love liberty they hate slavery apparently apparently they love liberty even more than god's word yeah because that's... eliezer points out that this makes them huge hypocrites uh <laughs> yes he does quite conveniently uh <laughs> he's he like... says he says this, has, this is really this is actually a good idea even though i understand that this breaks the law of god's sole dominion over life and death and also um, you know, I realize now that we were doing all these sins before and I was wrong and Josephus was right. 
But <laughs> now, what do we got left to do? We got to do the suicide thing. And then, uh, <laughs> oh, and we got to burn everything down so the Romans can't take any of it for themselves. Uh, some some men who Josephus describes as most effeminate. That's right. Are like, man, man, I don't want to die. <laughs> <laughs> they felt, quote, a commiseration for their wives and families, like total femmes. <laughs> most effeminate. And then uh, Eliezer has to ramp up the speech. Like, right. oh, I thought we were all brave warriors here. But I guess some of us fear death like stupid babies. Uh, he, first of all, belittles them. Yeah. Gets some good results that way. Yeah, he does. According to Josephus. Yeah. But then, of course, you attack the heart. And then you attack the mind Whoa. because he gets mad philosophical on him, he if does. I may say so. Yes, I, I believe this is Josephus just like enjoying philosophizing. Yeah. <laughs> He's he, like, he, has, he has adopted a rhetorical point of view and now he has to see it through to the end. He has end. to explore it because that's simply what he does. Um, for example, he puts some words in Eleazar's mouth that try to convince the Sicarii to do this by telling them that their souls actually want to be free. He's really... He's really riffing on mm -hmm. the whole Jewish religion here. Yes. He says, however, when the soul is freed from that weight, which draws it down to earth and is connected with it, it obtains its own proper place and does then become a partaker of that blessed power and those abilities, which are then every way incapable of being hindered in their operations. It continues invisible indeed to the eyes of Ben, as does God himself. Now how, he's how absurd a thing it is to pursue after liberty while we are alive and yet to envy it to ourselves where it will be eternal. That's right. He's like, you know what? We all love liberty. What's the freest thing of all? Death. Soul. Flying <laughs> oh, yeah. free of a Souls. body. <laughs> That's right. Death. The eternal freedom. And a perfect freedom. It's like very obviously, both both in content and in form, it's like a Greco-Roman speech. Yes. In construction, it it is extremely like rhetorical and, in that way. And it's not based on like Jewish ideas about death. No. Really. I mean, it's not completely separate from them, but it's like, it's weird. I don't think it's what Eleazar would have said. No, but there were Messianic Jews at this time that had some of these ideas. Yes. Yeah. About the afterlife and about like the idea that yeah, maybe it's really actually good if we die I mean, <laughs> because then we'll be Jesus. closer to god yeah. of course yeah um so i'm saying these these ideas weren't even though it, it it's done in a greco-roman rhetorical style these ideas weren't foreign to jews at the at, at the time yeah they weren't they weren't completely foreign but they were pretty cutting edge yeah i mean it's but it's not like traditional no right? absolutely yeah. not um the speech works extremely well of course uh everyone immediately sets out to burn everything with quote an unconquerable ardor of mind and a demoniacal fury. Um, of course, they love their wives and children, but, you know, they kill them. <laughs> uh, and then when they've killed all the women and children, well, 10 guys have to draw lots and then they have to kill all the other men. Right. Um, it's, you know, this whole suicide pact thing. This is how Josephus uh, escaped from Jotapata is he was in a he was in a cistern. They did the suicide pact thing. He happened to come up second to last and convince the last guy. And eh, let's just using his rhetorical powers. Yeah, let's just uh, get out of here. Yeah. Spe speaking of what Josephus had seen, can I point out a part of the speech where Eleazar says, uh, and he's talking about how 
anyone could even live after seeing Jerusalem destroyed. Mm -hmm. Now, who is there that revolves these things in his mind and yet is able to bear the sight of the sun, though he might live out of danger? Asking Mm. about having seen the destruction of Jerusalem. And in a lot of ways, like... That's really the question for Josephus. That's that's the question Josephus is asking. You know, he's putting himself in this situation and saying, I saw that. And like, I mean, the the tragedy in his life was having seen that and being on the Roman side. Yeah. Yeah. And he he spends seemingly the rest of his life reckoning with that. Trying to figure it out. So even in his his histories and, and everything, I feel like it infuses the whole thing and gives it like a, a surprising emotional weight when he puts these words into the into the mouth of someone he very clearly like hates, hates and who like represents to him all the worst parts of of Judaism that led to like their own self-destruction um he is still wrangling with this same idea that's so interesting i skimmed right over that line but that has so much resonance and then like i mean okay you get this thing I guess this is an established practice where they where they draw lots mm-hmm. and and then somebody has to kill somebody else in order to avoid committing suicide. Right. Technically. Right. Um, but it is an odd mirror of his experience at Jotapata. Mm-hmm. And the reason that he supposedly knows that all this happened is because there were seven survivors. There was uh, an ancient woman. Uh, a woman who was of kin to Eleazar and superior to most women in prudence and learning. And there were five children and they had all hidden in a water cistern, just like Josephus hid in a water cistern and then escaped a suicide pact. Right. Um, when I was at Masada and learned about this thing, I was very struck by um like, what was it like to be those two women down mm-hmm. there making this decision and, like, listening to everybody get killed above and, like, thinking, okay, yeah, uh, we don't want to get caught by the Romans, but uh, do we really want to, like, have our husbands kill us, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's such an interesting story in and of itself. But I had no idea that it directly paralleled this story that Josephus had just told about himself. Right. And I, I'm i not like meaning to be like, oh, Josephus might have made up some details or whatever. Like, that's not really that's important. not the point. Yeah. yeah. Um, but especially in light of you pointing this out, I'm thinking like, how much did he identify with? The people at Masada, even as he was like, and they were the worst and they murdered people on Passover, you know, (laughs) but then he's kind of like, but am I the worst? Because I kind of went over to the Roman side. So like. Right. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, in many ways, it seems like some of the stories that he tells are really about him wrangling with his own role in the war, Um, because the other option that he had besides joining was killing himself. Right. Was taking this path. Yeah. This path of death. Exactly. And he's like, or, yeah, so fight, he's, or fighting to the death or like taking the path of death, you know. And he's really imagining in this text what that would have been like. Mm-hmm. He's imagining it in great detail that he cannot possibly know in terms of like actual historical fact. Um, and he kind of shows a grudging 
admiration for them, right? Like, even as he's like, the speech is like, oh, we did so many sins that we shouldn't have done and we should have just cooperated with the Romans, like Josephus said, you know, but but at the same time, it's like, like we're we're dedicated to our cause and we'll never be taken by the Romans. Right. Um, at the end here, it says like, the Romans couldn't help but wonder at the courage of the Sicarii's resolution and the immovable contempt of death, which so great a number of them had shown when they went through with such an action as that was. And it's like, yeah, he he kind of respects them. He wants to hate them. Right. But part of him really respects them because they did something that he couldn't do. Yeah. But at the same time, they can create this monument, this like like this historical monument of occasion by this, this mass suicide murder pact or whatever. But it's just a pile of bodies, you know, like, yeah, you can, you can admire the bravery. But what it is, is like just death. And, you know, and like, then like, OK, they lost the fucking war. <laughs> yeah. You know, the temple is uh, gone. They're scattered. Yeah. They're they become a persecuted minority and they remain a persecuted minority for thousands of years. Yeah. Um. So interestingly, when Jews do start returning to the to the Holy Land uh, in the early 20th century to what was then Palestine, mm-hmm. um, there was a famous epic poem that a an ex-Soviet Jew who moved there, who was a, uh, I guess, a socialist Zionist. Okay. A poet by the name of Yitzhak Lamdan. Okay. Uh, he wrote an epic poem that's very famous in in Hebrew, I gather. Okay. Called, <laughs> I, I didn't learn it, but... <laughs> it's called it's called Masada. Okay. It's very difficult to find in translation in English. Okay. Um, I've only found translated portions because okay. it's, it's a long poem. If you it, give me like 10 years, I could probably eke it out. <laughs> Yeah, but it becomes it becomes kind of like a foundational sort of text of that era of 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 like Zionist thought of of Jews moving back to Palestine. Masada becomes like a place of pilgrimage almost, and his poem Masada becomes like a, a rallying cry for Jews, including it, it is included in like texts that were distributed amongst the resistance fighters in the ghettos. Um, Interesting. It gets adapted for song uh, and is sung by Jewish youth groups in the post-war period. Uh, Masada becomes a place that Jewish youth groups, Jewish military groups make an annual pilgrimage to. I will say when I was at Masada, there was a bunch of youth groups. And so all of that pretty much is based on this one account of the story. It doesn't show up in in Roman military history. It doesn't show up anywhere else. Mm -hmm. Just Josephus. Yeah. So that one story and then how it gets translated maybe in the medieval age into a into like a very apocryphal version of it. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, 1737. <laughs> right. The, ver- the height of modernity. <laughs> but anyway, so that's the version of the story that this whole sort of mythology is based on mm-hmm. that like Israel adopted in the 20th century, that this is like warriors fighting for the last stand of Israel before mm-hmm. exile, you know, and then that chapter sort of comes to an end with the Holocaust and with the Zionist movement. And now I it's, can see how that mythology would be put in place. That's a very uh, that narrative makes sense. Right. But it's so strange because in the story, they don't fight. They don't pick up a sword. Well, they pick up a sword, but only against their own wives and children. Right. Yeah. There's no mention of any Roman casualties. That's actually true. I had not even thought about that. 
They throw stones at the siege tower, Josephus says, but that's literally all he says in terms of resistance. Uh, so it's interesting. It's like it's like a warrior monument because they believed so much in liberty from yes. everyone. Mm-hmm. They were willing to break their own religious rules and kill themselves. I like as I learned the story, it seemed like it was very I didn't think of it as intentionally tailored to Americans, but I thought of it as unintentionally tailored for mm. Americans or just like this happens to be the kind of thing that is catnip to Americans like freedom you know and like the underdog fighting for freedom who right. give up everything for freedom and it seemed like such a romantic story to me um it was really interesting to read like the only source of it mm-hmm. and and to find that actually this entire story comes from a source that is largely critical of it. Yeah. Because you would not guess that from going to Masada. Right. You would not guess that at all. And even the the famous epic poem that gets like turned into, like I said, youth songs and like cements Masada as this site of like a holy site for the new Israel, essentially, it's like the nation state, not necessarily in a religious way. But it's the parts that I found, especially the ending, is very is pretty melancholy. You want me to hear some of it? Please. If to bear the shame of man and the world to blazon it forever, release me. The world unshamed will flaunt this shame as honor and spotless virtue. And if to find atonement I survive, then answer where? So importuning a silent voice replied in Masada. And I obeyed that voice, and so I came. Silent my steps will raise me to the wall. Silent is all the steps filled with the dread of what will come. Tall, tall is the wall of Masada. Deep, deep is the pit at its feet. And if the silent voice deceived me from the high wall to the deep pit, I will fling me. And let there be no sign remaining, and let no remnant survive. Wow. That's crazy. It's crazy. Like... So the the textual source that we have is like grappling with a huge ambivalence. Mm-hmm. And this poem is grappling with a huge ambivalence. And then like I go as a tourist and it's like, this is fucking William Wallace shit. Hell yeah. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that's so interesting. If you want to read a, a great article about... Uh, how Masada and the Holocaust exist as sort of historical metaphors for 20th century, 20th century Israel and 20th century Jews in general, I recommend uh, The Death of Memory and the Memory of Death by Yael Zerubavel in Representations. Well, I guess it's time to rate this book. How would you rate this book, my dear? I'm going to give it maybe seven out of 100... Uh, preserved date years okay and that's because the my rating went up a great deal Mm -hmm. in the past like three minutes because you know when i first encountered the myth of masada it was at masada as a tourist Mm -hmm. and it was like a very uh one-dimensional uh romantic heroic story and i liked it but as a one-dimensional story Then I read this and I was kind of rolling my eyes at Josephus and now he's like, oh, and then my enemies did a bunch of sins, but then they realized I was right. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But in talking about it, I really see a lot of literary depth here. Um, I'm really interested in how it's exploring Josephus' psyche. Mm-hmm. And I'm really interested in uh, like the way that it forms a, a national founding myth um, in the way that, you know, we have Thanksgiving, we have... The these, Mayflower. Yeah. All these weird things, yeah. And like George Washington slept here sure. type of deals. Um, and I'm just seeing a lot of, uh, I'm seeing a lot of depth to this story that I hadn't seen before. And it's very interesting. What would you rate it? I'm going to give it like a 19 out of 21 Daggerman. Daggerman. Yeah. I mean, for for a lot of the same reasons. Again, like when I was reading the actual text, you know, my eyes sometimes slide off of Josephus's words in a weird way. Mm. You know, it's that old-fashioned sort of history writing. Your word, your eyes slide off of William Whiston's words, to I, be fair. That is that is totally fair. It's totally fair. I guess Bill it, But getting a little bit deeper into the speeches, especially, that Eleazar gives, and then reading a bunch of supplementary stuff by, by contemporary Jewish and... Uh, and Israeli writers in particular about what they think of Masada um, really loads the whole thing up in a, in a very interesting way because it's the only source and because there is such like a, a legacy to it. I think it's a very interesting historiographical zone. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I don't say that about every zone. No, I see. you don't. She knows. Yeah. She can testify. You're very parsimonious about your zone appraisals. Put it on my tombstone. <laughs> but but I think it was great. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I did too. Um, you know what else I enjoyed? Hmm? Cracking the mailbag. What, what? Which I did while you were talking and weren't looking. Wow. Very sneaky. Our listeners, Matt and Sophie, asked us to curse their two cats, Minky and Carl Marx. Hmm. Minky for shredding toilet paper and Carl Marx for, quote, Refusing to promote the rights of the working class. Wow. So to Minky and Carl, I say, miserable will then be the young cats who will be strong enough in their bodies to sustain many torments. Wow. (laughs) Uh, We got an amazing email from our listener, Elle, full of details about growing up in Northern Ireland, including stories about stolen saint hearts. Accidentally mummified rats and mice, and a bona fide official cathedral cat named Lawrence Magnificat. Uh, she said it would be unwise to curse Lawrence because uh, he is a cat whom God clearly favors amongst cats. And we'll take and, her advice. Yeah, I I see no reason to dispute that. Um, she also told us that there is an official dog blessing ceremony held at her church every year when the choir sings "How much is that doggy in the window?" in Latin. And guide dogs and service dogs come with their owners to be blessed, and it's very wholesome. That is incredible, because here's how we arrived at the system on our podcast. Someone wrote in and asked us to curse his cats, because his cats were shitbags. <laughs> then someone wrote in about dogs, and we were like, we got to bless them, because clearly that's just that's just logical. Mm-hmm. I presume that they, uh, they arrived the at same it the logic. same way. Yeah, yeah, they followed the same logic. Mm-hmm. That's That's great. That's God's law. Our listener Erin wrote in to request an unheard of second blessing for her dog CeeLo, mm-hmm. who was recently diagnosed with canine dementia. Mm. Now, we know that CeeLo is still a tremendous boy, and our hearts go out to him and to his humans. And his picture is very cute. His picture is extremely cute. He's got old, old 
doggy white mask on his cute face. Mm-hmm. And, and I love him. Most importantly, he's a good boy. So to CeeLo, I say, whatsoever it be, which the dog touches, that lives and flourishes. Oh, CeeLo, I love you. That'll do it for Sunday School Dropouts this week. Uh, if you'd like to follow the show on Twitter, you can do so at Drop. You can follow me on Twitter at Lauren E. O'Neill, and you can buy my upcoming co-edited anthology, Empty the Pews, Stories of Leaving the Church. Go to EmptyThePews.com. Hell yeah, baby. Hell yeah. You can follow me on Twitter at Nico Bakulich, N-I-K-O-B-A-K-U-L-I-C-H. I've got an album out. You can check it out at NicoBakulich.com. Click on music because, look, that's what's on the record. If you're not a fan of music, you won't like this. That's true. Everybody else, you got to get a taste. <laughs> it's also streaming everywhere, Spotify, uh, etc. The river, the creek. I've got to put this girl to bed. <laughs> She's getting feisty. I've had some weird wine. <laughs> oh, Lord. If you want to send us an email, perhaps to get a pet blessed or cursed, all you have to do, open up your email client of choice. Maybe Lotus, AOL? Lotus Notes. <laughs> Lotus Notes. Uh, and send us a quick BBM to contact at sundayschooldropouts.lol. That's contact at sundayschooldropouts.lol and not dot com. Dot com full of Sicarii who will stab They'll you. They'll stab you. <laughs> They'll stab you real quick. We love you so much. Thank you for your patience. We'll be back in one American month. Uh, just remember, everybody, the longer you listen, the more you glisten. That's true. <laughs> and that's the truth. That's the truth. We'll see you on Sunday. Okay, Bye. see you on Sunday. Bye. <laughs>